Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Good afternoon. This is Carmen Nazario. It's Friday, and we are bringing you again another episode of our Veteran Founders Show. For those of you who've never been on our show, we interview veteran business owners and veterans of uh, nonprofit organizations and get to hear their amazing stories. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Heath Gross from Sedulo Group. Good afternoon, Keith, and let me know if I pronounce Heath and if I pronounce Sedulo correctly. Yeah, it's Sedulo Group, and, and we get that all the time. It's, uh, it's a little tricky to pronounce if you haven't heard it, so Sedulo Group is fine. Okay, Sedulo Group, got it. So, um, Heath, uh, we like to always do sort of an organic type of interview, and I always like to find out everyone's background, what's their story, where where they're from, where they grew up, what led them into the military. So you, you can start us off with that. Sure, happy to. Um, so just growing up, I uh, moved around quite a bit as a kid, um, spent a, a lot of years uh, as a young child in Kentucky, uh, and then later on uh, as a as a junior high and high school student, uh, we had moved to Pennsylvania. And so I, I spent uh, some of those formidable young adult years in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was it was actually my uh, junior high school year that I first, uh, enlisted in the military. I had um, joined as part of the pre-enlistment program that they used to offer back then where you could sign up early as a junior and it came with certain perks once you finally enlisted. And so uh, at the age of 17, I pre-enlisted to go into the military, signed up to become a airborne ranger, uh, was due to ship off to Fort Benning um, the, the month following my graduation from high school back in 1989. Uh, that was the course that I had sort of set for myself. But then my senior year of high school, I had a, a febrile seizure while in school. And so that actually barred me from enlistment for seven years. So it put my my military uh, ambitions on hold for a while. I, I figured at that point that um, military was probably off the table for me. And so I went to college, uh, attended the University of Louisville, where I got my degree in history. At the time, I was working full-time for a uh, youth organization, working with high school kids. And I did that for a number of years. And then um, in my late 20s, I uh, had decided that I went, really wanted to revisit the idea of going in the military again. Um, my goal at that point had changed a little bit. I wasn't thinking career military. I was really um, looking at the military as, a, as sort of a stepping stone to get into the FBI. And so I was about 27 years old, 28, something like that. And uh, I had a friend who was a retired FBI agent, and I'd heard lots of stories from him, and I thought that would just be this fascinating career. And so I had reached out to the, to the FBI and talked to their recruiters. 
And they said that even though I, I met the minimum requirements for the FBI, that I didn't have a very competitive application because I had no law enforcement or military or intelligence background. So um, it really was at that point that I started it considering again, like this is a path I need to explore again. And so I went and I spoke with the recruiters from the Air Force, Navy, Marines, and Army. And uh, ultimately, the, the Army offered me the best package um, because I already had a degree. Uh, I was able to enter as an E-4. I was able to pick my duty station, and I was even able to choose my MOS. So after taking the ASVAB, I chose to become a counterintelligence agent, a 97 Bravo counterintelligence agent, joined the military, uh, shipped off to basic training at the young age of 28 or so. Um, for me, basic was easy. I was already an adult. I had two kids. Um, I was in phenomenal shape. I was already running multiple marathons a year. And so for me, basic was, was pretty simple. Uh, from basic training, went out to Fort Huachuca, where I attended the uh, military intelligence school there and became a 97 Bravo counterintelligence agent, got my badge and credentials. And while I was there, I uh, got offered an opportunity to go to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. So I signed up for that, went down to jump school, uh, got jump certified, and then was sent to the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg. And upon arriving at the 82nd Airborne Division, um, was told I was going to be serving in the G2, which was very exciting to be able to, to go into a more of a strategic role. A lot of my buddies who had come out of the school with me were going to some of the line units. So I had a really uh, unique opportunity early on in the military to get to, to be a part of some of the strategic stuff that was going on. At the wow. Time, yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I got lots of questions already. So, um, so what does um, going to jump school, how does that relate to counterintelligence? I mean, was that just something you wanted to do, or is there a purpose in going to jump school as it relates to counterintelligence? Yeah, so I'm not sure if there was a great correlation. I think for me at the time, um, you know, if you think of it as sort of padding your resume, I wanted to sign up for every, you know, uh, every school I could get, everything that was going to look good on my military resume, because I knew ultimately my goal was to apply to officer candidates uh, school uh, and then eventually to, you know, drop an application at the FBI. And so I was going to take on every high speed school that I could. Um, and so, you know, jump school just sounded like a natural fit. They needed um, tactical counterintelligence guys to support the line units at the around the country, including Fort Bragg. So when I went to jump school, I knew there was a possibility that I would end up in a tactical unit, which was fine. Um, but it turned out, I mean, I was at the 82nd, which is definitely a tactical unit. But in the G2 is a little bit different than being uh, assigned to some of the, the line units. Yeah, so it was okay. really just about the experience of it all. Yeah. And then I'm just curious, because you already had gone to college, why didn't you go into directly into officer candidate school? Yeah, great question. I so I was presented with the opportunity to do the green to gold program, which, as you said, I would have gone directly uh, basic training and then straight to OCS. Uh, the difference there is if you go that route, you don't have any influence over how you're going to be branched. And if you're 
you know, again, my entire purpose for going in was to do uh, intelligence so that I could have that stepping stone into the FBI. So I wasn't really interested in going in, uh, becoming an officer and then getting branched, you know, armor or something, which nothing wrong with that. But that was not the lead I was looking for. I wanted to be on the intelligence side where if I forego, uh, basically forego that option, went and enlisted, I got to choose my branch. And my strategy was if I if I do this and I choose uh, to go into the intelligence side, I can always drop my packet for OCS later. And if I'm already on the intelligence side, I already have the MOS and the intelligence uh, side, then I'm more likely to get branched intel. And that's actually exactly what happened. So once I got to Fort Bragg, I was there for about a year. I dropped my packet for OCS, um, made E5, and then also got picked up for OCS at the same time. Um, and so from Fort Bragg, I then went back to Fort Benning for OCS. Mm. Um, I've been on all those sports except Fort Bragg, but because um, I'm also ex-Army. So yeah. uh, how interesting. So what happened after that? Did you get deployed into, uh, let's see, what? What year was it that you went in? So I don't know if we were in the um, Iraq or Afghanistan war and you got to utilize uh, your MOS in um, those areas. Yeah, so that's kind of where the, the story gets a bit interesting. So right before, when I got to, one of the, the last things I did when I was at Fort Bragg in my role in the G2 was um, I was, like I said, I was 28, so I was a little older than most of the guys, uh, most of the lieutenants around, or at that time, I guess I was an E4, not a lieutenant yet. And But I was also doing my master's thesis on uh, in global security with the concentration in counterterrorism. So I was already well down that path of counterterrorism from an educational standpoint. Now, this is pre-9-11. So I was doing all this this counterterrorist stuff in addition to the counterintelligence uh, piece um, outside of my military duties. So the last thing I got to do for the 82nd Airborne is um, they tasked me to write the uh, Fort Bragg terrorist threat response plan. And this was right before 9-11. So it wasn't a, a super stressful job. We kind of, I just had to sort of around the post, evaluate our weaknesses, uh, look at the threats uh, that, that could be posed, and then develop a response plan to those. So I did that, went to OCS. I got to OCS. It's a 10-week program. Everything was going smooth. I had a great class at OCS. There were, like myself, there were a lot of, there were some special ops guys. Uh, there were a lot of counter uh, counterintelligence and counterterrorism guys in my unit at OCS, so that was nice. Of course, we also had a mix of green to gold folks who had never had never um, had, had never actually been deployed in any situation. They were brand new to the military. They went straight from college to basic to OCS. They were in our unit as, as well. So it was a pretty mixed group. Eight weeks into the 10-week program, we were doing our our sort of final capstone exercise. It's like a three-day bivouac field exercise of op four and you're running operations. And we were in the middle of that exercise, sitting out in the field somewhere in the woods of Fort Benning, and uh, a truck pulls up, and it was one of our our drill instructors, and he informed us that a plane had flown into uh, one of the Twin Towers. Now, wow. that's, that's all he knew. He didn't have any other information, and so we were 
kind of contemplating that and thinking through like how does that happen how does a, a giant plane fly into a, a, the twin towers and and i remember even talking about like you know is it is this is this a, a a terrorist act is it an accident and within about 30 minutes um he pulled up again and said another plane has hit the tower we're canceling the event or canceling the training and so at that point of course we knew that that uh, we were under some kind of attack and so they brought us all into the, the main base camp and we spent the next eight hours just listening to the radio. Uh, we were completely locked down. We couldn't call family. We had a lot of guys there that were from New York. And so it was it was a pretty chaotic scene. We also had a lot of young guys who were, you know, 22 years old, right out of out of college with no military experience. And it was pretty obvious that, you know, that we were going to war at that point. We all knew something was going to happen and that a number of us were going to you know, end up deploying. So I'm going to, go I'm going to stop right here and just take a quick break and we're back. This is so fascinating. Um, uh, I want to get all the details. I'm sure our audience is just uh, looking forward to as well. We'll be right yes. back. CPA dudes where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. And we're back with Heath Gross from Sedalu. Did I do it right now, Sedalu Group? No, I probably didn't. Heath, are you there? Hello? Yes, I'm here. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. No problem. So um, we, we're back with Heath, and Heath is relating the events of 9-11 as he was, uh, you were in training uh, in Fort Benning uh, for a capstone exercise, right? That's correct. So, yeah, so we were, um, we, we knew something big was going to happen. Obviously, the entire country was, was responding. Um, so uh, a group of us, myself and a few other guys who all had, were assigned to typical units that would deploy early, we went to our uh, commander and we said, hey, you know, um, this is our specialty. Um, I'm a, I do counterintelligence and counterterrorism. And there was a group of us and we said, we want to, we want to leave early and we want to go back to our unit so that we can deploy in support of whatever operations are going to take place. And um, they, they actually let us present to the, the post commander um, our idea of, of leaving early since we had just finished the capstone. And he basically said, look, no one's going anywhere right away. Um, the best thing you can do right now for the military is to finish up your, your school here, um, go to OIC, off of your, your OIC training, and when it's time to deploy, you'll be ready to deploy. And so uh, it, was, it was a tough pill to swallow to not be able to jump right into the fight and to kind of have to sit there at a schoolhouse. But, um, you know, that's what we were told to do. So that's what we did. Uh, we deployed. I went straight from... OIC at Fort Benning out to back out to Fort Huachuca to the military intelligence school for OBC, which is the officer basic or sorry, OBC officer basic course. When I got there, I was branched a 35 Charlie, which is an all source uh, intelligence officer. But um, I really wanted to try to get into the uh, counterintelligence officer program, which was a 35 Echo. So I went and talked to the post commander and said, sir, you know, I'd, I'd love to be a 35 Echo. And he said, you can't until you're a captain. 
we don't, you can't, uh, you can't branch like that until you make captain. And I, I made my case that I already was a 35, I already was a 97 Bravo. I had a badge, I had my credentials, and I had already participated in actual investigations. And apparently the argument worked because he took my paperwork and signed it and handed it back to me and said, congratulations, you're the, the only uh, first lieutenant <laughs> 35 Echo in the Army. So uh, with that, he told me to pack my bags. I was headed to Afghanistan. Um, oh wow! That yeah, so, I mean, I that the fact that you could convince that I mean that's unheard of of anybody challenging the military. I think you should do this. I think you should consider this. I mean, this is the first time I hear of anything like that. That's amazing. And you were already packed up right away to go to Afghanistan. My goodness. So what yeah. happened then? So they uh, first they sent me to Fort Gordon, which was going to be my permanent duty station. Uh, once I got to Fort Gordon, we were already ramping up for deployment. Um, the unit that I was assigned to at Fort Gordon was the first uh, one of the first units on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, we went in with the special ops guys uh, long before any of the main units made it. We were, it was basically the CIA, spec ops, and our unit was there doing the counterintelligence source operations. So we're talking. Um, you know, horseback and mountains of Afghanistan kind of stuff. It was pretty crazy. Oh, uh, I eventually got uh, deployed to Kuwait, where I uh, was assigned the, as the special projects officer um, for the counterterrorism unit that was run out of Kuwait. So I ran the teams out of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Djibouti, uh, Saudi Arabia, I think I said that. I had about six different teams that I was running in those countries doing uh, all counterterrorism source operations. So our job was to, you know, go out, uh, establish relationships with, you know, everybody from government officials to police officials to people that we suspected might be moving guns or heroin or whatever it is. There's, there's an entire uh, trade thing that goes on in the Middle East where guns for drugs and drugs for money, and it's, it's pretty messy. And, the ter- and there's a lot of tie in to that, to the terrorism. So and how did uh, you do that? So did you have like interpreters with you? So we did we did use interpreters for the tactical stuff. Um, so I, I rarely used an interpreter um, for the guys who are on more of a tactical side. They would most of the stuff that I was doing was strategic, and so it wouldn't have made sense for me to have an interpreter there. We were uh, my my unit. We were at that point plain clothes, relaxed grooming standards. So we weren't exactly running around um, telling everybody we were, you know, military. So for me, it did not make sense to have an interpreter. So we just had to make do um, with what we had. Most of the, the sources that I was dealing with were spoke some level of English, or I would find some creative way to make sure I had someone who could do the interpretation for me that wasn't an actual hired interpreter. Um, so was there running operations? And it was, it, at that point, it was kind of, uh, it was a weird, it was a weird situation to be in because obviously it was very intense. Um, we were there for a very serious mission. Um, but at the same time, uh, it was, it was really in a lot of ways, um, everything that I had, had, had hoped it would be. I was getting to do the job I had been trained to do. I was living out, you know, we were doing missions and operations 
we were the kind of stuff that, you know, I used to just read about in books. And, and here we were out there doing it, working 18, you know, 19 hour days, meeting with sources, writing up reports. Um, I mean, we have just obviously I can't talk about all the, the, the stories because a lot of them are probably so classified. But I mean, we, we had direct impact in that war on terrorism and finding and identifying known um known allies and known cell members of cells and being able to shut those cells down and do some really good work. So it was an incredible time. Um, and I, I was at the, at that time was still had some duties, uh, some reporting duties back to my, uh, my the unit I was permanently assigned to, but most of the work I was doing at that time was directly for the chief of station with the CIA. So I was getting ready. To, I was on a daily basis, interacting with them, presenting to them, working with their agents. Um, once once the ground once they started the build up for the the uh the ground war for the invasion of Iraq everything started changing a bit it went from our focus being primarily on counterterrorism in Afghanistan and training camps to much more focused on the invasion of Iraq so resources were getting pulled um a lot in fact i remember we had a a special project that came in that we had to do that was under normal circumstances, would have been way above my pay grade. Uh, I mean, I was only a lieutenant at the time. Now, granted, I was, I think, 30 years old by then. Uh, and we were playing clothes, so no one knew my rank. They just knew I was a, uh, a counterterrorism or counterintelligence officer. No one actually knew that I was, was only a lieutenant. Um, and so that probably, that probably helped me out a bit as well. And uh, one day I had a visit from some, some folks uh, at the agency, and they basically said, hey, you have this this one particular source that you've developed that they really wanted access to and they wanted to further develop, and they presented me with this mission opportunity that would have been a deep cover mission with a black passport and all of that great stuff that you, you again, you think about, you read about, you dream about. Um, it was one of those missions. I remember they actually started off the conversation with this is one of those, this conversation never happened. And I knew at that point it was going to be good. Like this was like right out of the Tom Clancy book. And yeah, they they told me about the mission. Um, I was super jazzed about it. I was, I could not wait. Um, It did not have an endpoint, So I was definitely going in uh, with a lot of question marks in terms, in terms of how long I'd be gone and I would have no communication with my family and whatnot. So that part was intense. But at the same time, I, I, I think all I was thinking about was um, the mission, the job, the mission, and of course the adrenaline rush that was with it. And so I accepted it. Um, and they said, okay, well, you'll get a call in a couple of days, be ready. Um, Cause when it, when it comes, you're going to get a ticket on a commercial airliner and you're out of here. And I said, great. And I called my, my wife and said, I took this mission. I want to go do it. Uh, she wasn't real happy about it. Um, but at that point, I had been – our marriage was in a pretty rough spot anyway after having been deployed for so much, so long, and so often. Um, so I then just had to wait for them to call me and for this mission to begin. Uh, and then two days later, uh, I started feeling sick and kind of had like a, a weird stomach ache, and, and it just kept getting worse and worse. I thought it was the flu. Um and after about four days, I was just curled up. I couldn't eat or drink. I'd gotten really, really ill. And so um, 
one of my colleagues say, we have to get you to the hospital. I didn't want to go to the Kuwait hospital. So um, we decided to drive all the way up to the um, Camp Udari, which was right on the Iraq border, Iraq-Kuwait border. Um, drove out to Doha, picked, ter- turned in our commercial vehicle, picked up a Humvee, drove up to Camp Udari. Um, it was such a weird scene, I remember, because I was in civilian clothes, but you know, I'm like curled up in the back seat, and they made me wear a Kevlar into the camp. It was just a strange thing. We were only days away from the, the ground war starting. And I got there, um, and they rushed me in to the, the cash unit. Um, they had not had a surgical patient yet. They were still setting up the facility. So they poked around a little bit, and they said we they did a, a portable ultrasound. They said, we don't know exactly what's causing it, but we think it could be appendicitis. So we want to go ahead and take it out because if it ruptures up here, you know, it could be really bad. We're, we're too far away from, from the hospital. So they decided to go ahead and do an emergency appendectomy right there at the, at the field hospital. Uh, went in, opened me up. My appendix was fine. Um, they went in and took it out anyway, just in case. They sewed me up, put me in the recovery room. Um, they de-intubated me. Um, but then shortly afterward, I, my temperature started elevating and going up, up, up. Um, I got full muscle rigidity and my temperature hit about 111. They started packing me full of ice. The, um, anesthesiologist came in, immediately saw what was happening and recognized it as a malignant hypothermic reaction, um, where my, basically the, I was having a, uh, a reaction where the the cells actually start to break down and leak calcium into the muscle, so the muscles start to harden. Your diaphragm freezes. Your body temperature just starts to shoot to the roof. They packed me full of ice. They reintubated me. Um, there's a drug that they use to treat malignant hypothermia called dantrolene, and with it you have about a 70% survival rate. Without it, it drops to about 30%. And what's weird is Army cash hospitals don't carry Dantrolane because it doesn't have a very long shelf life. It's pretty unstable. It's expensive. The MASH units, so the rear units, do have it. Um, And so the anesthesiologist said, do we have Dantrolane? And they said, we do. And it turns out that the MASH unit, uh, their refrigeration system wasn't set up yet. And so this cash unit was holding their Dantrolane for them until they got it set up. And so uh, just complete coincidence or miracle, whatever you want to call it. They had dantrolene. They shot me full of that, um, kept me packed on ice, put me on a Blackhawk, and then evacuated me to Kuwait. And then from Kuwait, they put me on a uh, medical plane to Germany. And uh, there I was in a coma for the next five weeks or four weeks, I guess. Um, And then eventually came out of that, spent another month or so in the hospital in Germany, during that time when I was in the hospital in Germany, the ground war started. Um, so I was one of the first to arrive into Lundstuhl in Germany. Um, but then everybody else started pouring in after that. And then eventually, um, I believe before they even sent me home, they let me know that I was going to be medically retired, that there was no way that with um, mm. this malignant hypothermic condition, which apparently is genetic, I was born with this. Um, genetic condition that makes you susceptible to certain volatile anesthetics, which is what triggered the event. So they sent me home. Um, I showed up at home about 130 pounds and, you know, in a wheelchair. And it was, it was a bad sight. Um, 
hadn't seen my kids in a couple of years. So it was, it was quite a, a homecoming, um, not the homecoming, of course, I had expected. Keith, we're, I'm going to take a, another quick break and we'll be right back. Great. Thanks. Today's episode of The Veteran Startups is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. For instance, media relations. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. And we're back with Heath Gross from Sedulo Group. We were just talking uh, about his um, uh, his experience during 9-11 and post-9-11 and the mission that he was about to go into when this uh, medical condition surfaced. So, you know, I... I wondered that even though the the army um, had you leave on um, medical um, uh, leave or not medical leave, but you, uh, I'm trying to think of the terminology. Um, it was a medical retirement. Medical retirement um, that you got to experience above and beyond what you expected in terms of working with all of these organizations like the CIA and the counterintelligence. I mean, if you would have gone in the military uh, right after when you had planned, you probably may have not been able to engage with uh, the type of work that you ended up doing. Uh, so um, uh, I, I, I guess at that time it must have been disappointing for you. And so how do you view that, you know, because here you were, you know, so excited about this mission they were going to send you to, and then this situation uh, comes up with your health and kind of changes everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was pretty devastating. Um, you know, by the time I got home, um, there was, I was already dealing with so much stuff. I think, you know, from the moment that I gained consciousness in Germany, I immediately was just overcome with, uh, an incredible amount of guilt that I had, you know, left my unit, that my unit was still there, that my team needed me. Um, there's something about being in those, um, very intense, uh, you know, combat type situations, although I shouldn't say combat because this wasn't combat we were doing, but, but we were doing, we were operating in a combat theater, let me put it that way. And so uh, I had tremendous guilt. Like I just kept feeling like my guys needed me and I let them down and I wasn't there. So I was dealing with that. Then I was dealing with the personal loss of my health. Um, so, you know, before I deployed, I was training for ultra marathons and I was just in incredible shape. And now I come home and I'm, I'm broken and I can't walk and uh, just my health is messed up. Really, I mean, and, and they were telling me at the time, you know, these were a lot of these things that I was experiencing physically were lifelong issues. I had um, numerous complications from the surgery that ended up. Um, I ended up with some nerve damage in my leg and it was just, it was all kinds of stuff that went, went wrong. Uh, so yeah, I was, and then on top of that, I was coming home very sick. 
Um, and to back to my family, you know, when I left, my youngest, my third child had just been born when I deployed, when I came back, um, you know, she was walking and talking. Um, so I had to reintegrate to the family, but in a way that was different than before. I, w- I couldn't really be the provider. I couldn't really do much. Um, so it was really tough. And then on top of that, I was I was unaware but i was also really dealing with some ptsd issues from you know some of the stuff that i had experienced while i was deployed but didn't know any of that was going on i I just came home kind of a kind of a mess um so yeah in terms of so i got home and i started thinking you know what am i going to do and i really did have quite a crisis of of conscious you know like what, what what do i do now i've i've spent the last you know five years developing this very unique skill set. I was really good at it. Um, I was sort of at the pinnacle of my career and, and then it all gets flushed on the toilet. Um, I had about a year, the, the army, um, it was pretty gracious. And then I had almost a full year that I got to uh, focus on physical therapy. Uh, I had to report to my duty station a couple times a week. That was it. Um, and when I wasn't, I would just report in and let them know I was okay. The rest of the time I was either doing physical therapy or going back to school. And so I had decided to go back to school and get my MBA um, since I couldn't do field work anymore. I couldn't uh, serve in the intelligence community. And it was in those first few months that I got back uh, working on my MBA that I first read about this, about the competitive intelligence industry. Um, I didn't really have any exposure to it before that. Um, And the way it was explained, you know, competitive intelligence was, you know, it's what businesses use to gather information about competitors and about the marketplace. And it's about establishing, you know, good sources of information. And I thought, okay, well, obviously their rules are a little bit different than what, what we had when I was on the government side. But when it comes to source operations and, and establishing relationships with people to get information, I'm good at that. And so um, I started working as a competitive intelligence contractor, just doing subcontract work for other firms. Uh, within probably um, nine months or so of, of coming home, I was back on, I was on the computer doing research for companies. Uh, I was still dealing with a lot of the physical things, but I could, you know, at that point, my, my mind was getting pretty sharp again and I was able to, to work. Um, and I did contract work for about uh, six months. And then I was hired by a firm in DC, a competitive intelligence firm in DC. I joined their team for about a year. And then after a year, uh, I, I really had that entrepreneurial bug. Um, I, I just had so many of my own ideas on how I could build a competitive intelligence company uh, and, and some ideas on how I could, could do it better and more efficiently and how I wanted to hire people and how I wanted to train people and how I wanted to position it. And so in around 2005, I think, 2006, somewhere in there, I founded my own competitive intelligence company, Sedua Group. Um, for the first few years, I still mostly just did subcontract work for other CI firms because I was kind of the new kid on the block and uh, didn't have a lot of our own clients. So I did a lot of work for other firms. And then um, in 2007, I had a phenomenal year where I, I was able to, um, using my own contractors, I had billed about uh, you know three or four times my normal income in one year. And so at the end of that year, I remember thinking, you know, I could, um, I could pay off the house and buy a new car, go on a great vacation. 
or I could take all this money and put it back into the business and really start to grow this thing. And that's what I decided to do. Um, I went out and hired my first staff, my first couple staff folks. And uh, by 2008, I think by the end of 2008, I had six employees. Um, and then we just started growing. And In just two years, that's quite amazing. So what do you think uh, you did differently? Because it really takes sometimes such a long time to grow a company. That kind of sort of brought you uh, success quite early here and within a year. Um, what, what do you think, um, can you share a little bit about that? What, yeah, what, yeah. I, I think, uh, a couple things. Um, first of all, I, and I, and I credit my clients for this. I think that they, my clients, which is, is pretty, it's across, uh, it's really a cross section of industries. We work a lot in pharma, biotech, but we also do a lot of work in, in um, software and technology and professional services. So we really work, work across the industry spectrum. But I, I do think um, a lot of my clients were very eager to work with a veteran-owned business. I, I really do think that's true. I think that when they would look at my profile, um, they would see that I was you know, a retired um, counterintelligence officer, that we were a disabled veteran-owned business. I, that means a lot to our clients. We have, we have clients that that uh, in RFP process, if they're looking at two companies and one is a minority or a veteran-owned business, that does have weight for them. It, you know, assuming all things are equal within the proposals. Um, but I think for me, I think there was a, I think that really did help having, you know, being a, a recent retiree um, of the military, having that background in counterintelligence, I think uh, helped me a lot. Then also um, offering, you know, offering a new twist on things. Um, when I got involved in the, the competitive intelligence industry, it was dominated by maybe four or five main companies that had all been around for 15 to 20 years. They had been doing things the same way for a long time. And when I came in, I was all about innovation. How can we do it better? How can we do it more efficiently? How can we you know, what is it our customers really want? What do our clients really need? And so I think because I was new into the industry and didn't have any of those uh, preconceived prejudice about what competitive intelligence is supposed to be, I came in it with a fresh perspective that I think just resonated with our clients. And so we went from 2008 with six employees um, by 2000, I think 14, 15, uh, we were named the fastest growing uh, consulting company in America by Inc. Magazine. Uh, we had, had Congratulations. Thanks. That Thanks. is a, quite an achievement. That is amazing. So um, what, how did you translate, you know, these unique skills that you had uh, from the military into this type of business, this com you know, competitive intelligence. It's interesting that it's called competitive intelligence and you were doing counterintelligence. Right, right. I think <laughs> the way it translated was um, because in my ability to train my staff in how to get information from a source um, without asking direct questions, you know, how to, how to do a solicitation, how can you talk to someone, have a conversation about the industry and about a product and gather as much information you can. 
um, and do it in a way that's ethical and legal and you're not crossing any boundaries. Um, and it's really just through this very conversational interviewing style. When we talk to sources, we don't tell them, hey, I'm interviewing you. It's more of a conversation. Uh, we extract as much information as we can without you know, crossing any lines or um, and then, but if we do enough of those interviews, we can pull all that information together, do our analysis, and then we can per- come to our client with a, um, you know, a PowerPoint deck that lists, hey, here's, here's what your competitors are doing. This is what they're focused on. This is what their R&D roadmap looks like. This is uh, how they're messaging and positioning their product against yours. And this is what their customers are saying. Um, so, I, but I think the difference was my ability to train my staff to do that. It was interesting that when I had, after I had started Sedulo, but in the early years when, before I was multi, multi-staff, um, there were other CI firms, competitive intelligence firms, we call them CI for short, that would hire me to come in and train their staff on how to do the primary research, how to do the source interviews, um, because that was my specialty. So I think that very quickly, um, distinguish us from a number, number of the other vendors in the industry just because we we had that expertise in-house um yeah and so we just continued to to pour into that and grow that business and develop it and and over time you know as i grew into the industry as i continued to read and study and take more courses myself and, and build out my own capabilities and hire really amazing people great staff very smart people our, what we were doing in the early days at Sedulo Group was very tactical. It was very tactical intelligence. You know, clients were running, well, how much do they charge for this? And what are they doing tomorrow? But, but today, what we provide clients is very different. Today, it's, it's strategic in nature. Um, it's, yes, there's lots of tactical information there as well, but we're really trying to help inform their strategic decision-making. If they're considering an acquisition or they're considering um, moving into a, a new geographic market or you know, spending money on a new R&D program. Before they do that, they want to come talk to us, have us do our research so that we can come back and say, hey, this is what you're going to be up against in this new market. And so we have developed these strategic competitive intelligence frameworks for everything from how to deal with Amazon to um, how to handle a merger and acquisition. Um, We do threat and uh, threat and vulnerability work. So Again, the work has just today, it's much more strategic than it used to be. Um, we just continue to grow the business and, and expand it to new areas. But it, it was uh, come a long way since those early days. You have. What an adventure. Yeah. What, a, what an adventure. We're going to take another, the last break for today, and we'll be right back. Okay, great. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code StartupRuby. And we're back with Heath from Sedulu Group. Tell me, Heath, what does Sedulu mean? Uh, so Sedulu is Latin. It means zealous. And um, and it's it was really, as I was trying to come up with a name, you know, it's, it's hard to develop a name nowadays for a company. But I wanted something that had a meaning. Um, and when I thought about um, 
my approach to to collection and to research and to client uh, service, uh, zealous was the word that kept coming to my mind. And so did a little bit of Google research and sure enough, Sedulo was available. And so, so I snagged it. So we've been Sedulo group ever since. Um, I like it because it doesn't, most people, it doesn't really mean anything, but it does mean something. There's, there's a, a nice little uh, Easter egg hidden in there. It, it is. And so you were strategic about the name. So, um, so what are your plans for the business? Um, um, it's it, it's obvious that you you know you were able to leverage your skills from the military, and and then utilize them um, in your business, uh, which probably is something that a lot of people don't realize that the military uh, they are trained so well that just about everyone can leverage the the skills they learn and be successful in any type of industry after they leave um i think that some a lot of corporations realize that and they really are looking for uh veteran employees because of that they make yeah. wonderful employees as well and uh wonderful entrepreneurs so so uh what what is uh what is going to happen now? What are your, you know, plans in, in for beyond? I mean, the future looks really bright for you, and I can see how this is uh, such your position at such a time when there's so much change going on that companies have to reinvent themselves all the time. Because what was relevant, you know, a few years ago is may not be relevant uh, now. So, um, and and it's it appears I've been to your website that you work with Fortune 100 and 500 companies, correct? Yeah, we we do. Um, the majority of our clients we would would be considered sort of enterprise level clients. Um, they're not all Fortune 500, but a, a quite a few of them are. We work with. The Fortune 50, the Global uh, 1000, the free. But we also represent um, some of the the mid cap companies as well. Um, we we don't do a lot today for um, small companies, unless uh, um, they're funded. Mainly just because, unfortunately, a lot of people still view competitive intelligence as a nice to have. You know, it's like, hey, we have to make a decision. We have the budget. Let's spend it. Um, but a lot of smaller companies, you know, if they have to make a choice between competitive intelligence and market research, they tend to still put their money on the market research side. And so we tend to deal with mid cap and larger companies. Um, like I said, there are exceptions to those if they're if they're uh, well funded startups. Um, so in terms of what we're doing as a company, uh, we are continuing to grow. We're uh, we're in, in, in sort of an expansion mode right now where we're looking at some potential acquisition targets to expand our capabilities. We've, we've grown, um, we've grown so much organically that now we're at that place where we have to start looking at what, what are some of the other types of services um, that, uh, that we could offer our clients and what other capabilities could we bring in house that we could offer our clients and going outside of just hiring a person, but we're now looking at, um, some specific companies around data analytics and market research and things like that so that we could potentially acquire those companies, roll them all up together and be able to provide, you know, much more uh, well-rounded portfolio of services. So that would be, that's a, a big, 
a big chunk of what we're doing. Uh, I mentioned our we've developed this um, this these uh, what we call strategic competitive intelligence frameworks. Uh, there we have six of those. We're we're fine. We're kind of working on those, pushing out some white papers. Um, and then we're making a, a big PR push to to get those out there so that we can start um, marketing those to to our clients so they can see that, again, we do more than just the research. There's this entire strategic um, piece that goes along with it. And then on a personal side, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a serial entrepreneur, I would say. Um, I've to date um, been a part of about 20 different startups. Um, and um, I, I currently am involved in seven different companies that um, have some level of ownership in. And so I think, um, you know, Sedulo is my focus, has been for years. Um, but I, I have always, I cut out a little bit of time out of each week that I get to spend on my other projects. And so um, doing lots of neat stuff with those as well. And, uh, and you know, I think there's... Um, I read a book years ago called The E-Myth, and it's 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 a pretty um, it's a normal it's a staple for business schools. Um, but in the book uh, E-Myth, he talks about the difference between an entrepreneur and a small business owner, and how they're they there is overlap, but they're not always the same. Um, a small business owner, you know, they're they're an expert at what they do, and they start their own company, a, a plumber or electrician or whatever that is, and they build their business. And they're small business owners, and, and that's what America's built on. Um, but being a small business owner doesn't mean you're an entrepreneur. There's something about an entrepreneur. There's something about that. When you build that business, it's rarely enough. It's, it's okay, what's next? <laughs> what can we add? What can we do? And I, I definitely fall in, in that latter category. Um, as much success as we're having with Sedulo, um, I still had interest in other areas as well, other businesses and other things I would like to see grow and happen. And so I invest in those and participate in those. Uh, I do a lot of work with other veterans uh, as well. We hire a lot of veterans, but also I think because of my position in this industry, when I, I, I think I'm on someone's like uh, first stop list when you get out of the intelligence community, whether you're coming from the CIA or um, the military, um, I tend to I get a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails from guys who are transitioning into the civilian world, just looking for for some guidance. Um, and what can they do? There, there's there's a I think a lot of people are under the misconception when they come out of government service that, you know, the job that their civilian job needs to look exactly like their military job. And a lot of guys, a lot of people don't want to deploy back to, you know, to, to, Af to Afghanistan or to the Middle East or whatever it is. So what can they do? And so I work with the veterans to really think about how their skills um, can apply to ancillary industries. It doesn't have to be that exact same skill, but how could you use the skills you have and apply them in some way into this other job? If you're looking at getting out of, out of the traditional um, you know, contractor jobs for the government, and you really want to move into the commercial space and in the business community, how can you, what, what skills did you have there that could apply in some way and then helping them flesh that out? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I alluded to that earlier, and that is so important. That's wonderful work. I actually have another friend of mine who does that as well. He's ex-Air Force. Uh, but this is wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask you, just because we always do that on our show, and usually it was my co-host questions, uh, he would always ask, what What would you look back to and say, oh, I wish I would have done this? 
you know, I don't, he would call, you know, you could look at it and say a mistake, but what thing would you advise um, to our listeners um, or just share candidly if, if I hadn't done this, you know, uh, uh, in terms of business, not in terms of the military, but in terms yeah. of business? I would say um, in terms of business, I, um, I'm a, a very strategic thinker and I'm also a bit ADD, you know, I, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, always looking at, I'm, I'm just always either writing a new, a new uh, novel or working on a screenplay or developing a new business. And I'm kind of all over the place. Um, early on in Sedulo's history, um, I hired uh, a couple of employees that I trusted to run the company. And um, I think the mistake that I made was um, they were doing a good job. And so I, I continued to allow them, give them more and more responsibility and, of course, continue to compensate them fairly for it. Um, but unfortunately, uh, years later, it turned out that because I was letting them run the operations of the company. So even though I was providing the strategic direction, because they were running the operations, they began to feel like, hey, this is my company. I don't need this guy. And so I, I had a really um, I went, we went through a really tough uh, transition within Sedulo a couple of years back where, you know, some of my my key leadership uh, basically tried to do a little mini takeover. <laughs> and luckily, oh. I, found, I found out about it and was able to to stop it. And, and um, you know, those folks are no longer with the company. And I was able to hire um, just an extremely professional, experienced, dedicated staff. Um, so I think the lesson learned is, um, regardless of how excited you are about other things that come up, you know, if you're a serial entrepreneur or whatever the situation is, you can't take your eye off the ball. Um, you can't give up too much control or too much authority, um, because if you do, then you kind of lose track of things. Um, Sedulo is, is the company is today in large part to the amazing employees that I have that do incredible work every day. Um, but I'm also not naive. I also know that Sedulo is where it is today because of my leadership and because of the innovation I brought to the industry. Um, and, and it's those two things together that make it successful. And if I if I'm not doing my part, if I'm not constantly interjecting that that strategic level thinking, if I'm not interjecting that new innovation, those ideas, then even my company can can start to feel like, wait a minute, is he is he paying attention? Does he care? And your employees have to know you care. Um, they've got to know that that you care about them and you care about the company. So again, the mistake would be don't give up too much control. Um, even if it's not in your, your wheelhouse. Um, and the second is always make sure that your employees know that you care, um, that you care about the company, that you, you, compare, you care about their well-being. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you, Heath. Uh, with that note, I also wanted to uh, make a little announcement. Uh, one of the veterans we interviewed a few months ago just launched – a book, um, his name is Bobby Herrera, I came out on Amazon uh, the first week of June, and I've read it. And, and the book is called 
the gift of struggle, and I can wholeheartedly say that it's more, it's a book on leadership lessons, and he's ex-Army, but it's more than just a book on uh, leadership lessons. It's really a testament to human resilience, and he wrote it from the heart, and it sheds a lot of light on lessons that life can provide us in unexpected ways. So with that note, I wanted to end the show and thank you again for uh, being on the show, Heath. And we will look forward to seeing everybody next Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.